Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 20 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. I must admit, 20 episodes is a bit of a personal milestone. When I started this humble little endeavor about two years ago, although I hoped the project would find its way into the ears of like-minded people of faith, and I likewise hoped that I would find the time and energy to continue it for many years, I honestly had no idea if I would ever produce more than just a few episodes. First of all, I wasn't even certain I could do it. I had never interviewed anyone in my life. Fortunately, I also found kind, interesting, and accommodating guests to join me for conversations. To all my guests, I am eternally grateful that you trusted me to share your story. And most importantly, although I hoped, I wasn't certain I would find engaged listeners interested enough to join me in this quest to better understand how we as Christians should interpret and potentially engage in the increasing public interest in the topic of psychedelics. Well, fortunately, it appears that all that is following a very positive trajectory. And to all of you who continue to listen, share, and or support the podcast, you have my deepest gratitude. I have really enjoyed corresponding with and getting to know so many of you. It is my fervent prayer that you will ever abide in the riches of God's grace and mercy. So please continue to listen and share the show and to reach out to me via email, contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. You can also support the show by visiting thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support. Your financial support is always welcome and appreciated. One more announcement before we begin our conversation with today's guest. I would like to begin hosting occasional Zoom hangouts with listeners this summer. If that is something you'd be interested in, please send me an email, contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com with hangout in the subject line. And if we haven't already met, introduce yourself and tell me you would like an invite to the meetings. I would like to keep these meetings casual and not too heavy, but we can also do a little Q&A and possibly discuss some deeper thoughts and ideas if time allows and the group is interested. I've participated in these types of meetings before on other platforms, and it's a great opportunity for a host to get to know their listeners and an opportunity for listeners to meet like-minded fellow travelers. And there's one more announcement I'd like to share with you, but in an effort to keep this introduction brief, Hang around after the interview for news about some potential in-person opportunities together with myself and fellow listeners. Well, that's enough business. Let's get to today's conversation. Our guest today is Rob Nelson. Rob is a biologist and wildlife educator whose goal is to reconnect people with nature. He got his master's degree in behavioral ecology in Hawaii and a master of fine arts in science and natural history filmmaking from Montana State University. He's hosted 24 TV shows and is best known for his work on Secrets of the Underground and Life After Chernobyl. 
His own production company, Untamed Science, has produced over a thousand short films for K-12 students and is mixed into most science textbooks today. Recently, he started the YouTube channel Stone Age Man that looks into humans' association with nature. His videos on psychedelics now have close to 8 million views. As a Christian and a biologist, he has spent considerable time thinking about how these two worlds interlap. So now please join me in extending a warm welcome to Rob Nelson. Rob, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm excited yeah. to chat through all this, by the way. Oh, me too. Me too. And it's never, never a dull conversation when just <laughs> discussing the intersection of faith and psychedelics. Yeah, hot topic, really, because um, psychedelics are a little illegal. And in today's society, it seems like talking about any any sort of religious background or religious faith is also a little bit taboo. Mm, you're right. You're right. It is. At uh, least in my field, in the sciences, you know, you don't really talk about your faith. Right. I think it's ultimately impossible to disengage our faith from all the other activities that we participate in. So it's uh, I feel fortunate to be able to uh, bring those two things together with people on a regular mm. basis. Yeah, it's tricky because I feel like sometimes uh, discussions of faith seem to get uncomfortable for people, yet they're really important conversations. And so they just happen fewer than you, fewer times than you would like, I think, although they should be the most important things and you'd like to talk about it, but you don't, you don't want to bring them up at dinner conversations with unknown friends of different right. backgrounds. Well, just, you know, just like politics, things can quickly devolve and the mudslinging begins. So <laughs> people tend to probably... <laughs> take a wise course of action and avoid those topics around the, mm -hmm. the dinner table. Um, I think we've all learned from negative experiences, you know, if we can avoid those, um, especially in group discussion, oftentimes when people are one-on-one, -on -one, you know, they're able to navigate those mm -hmm. differences. They're not as, as apt to uh, sling mud and fight over the turf. Right. Um, unless you're on social media. <laughs> Well, and I, I, on social this week, I actually put, posted a really good quote that I heard, which was, would you rather be right or would you rather be curious? And to me, that encapsulates a lot of the conversation that should be had around faith and, and just things in general is you have a lot to learn from other people. So it's good to listen and see what they have to offer. And you don't always have to argue your own point of view all the time. Right. And as the years go by, I tend to discover things that I was wrong about that I was pretty certain I was right about in the past. So um, there's always a little bit of an ego check uh, with age and that concept of being right. Oftentimes, uh, we learn that maybe maybe we weren't so certain as we thought we were about things in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm constantly checking what I believe with my reality and that hopefully, well, and that changes when you have psychedelics in the picture, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. it, <laughs> does. it a completely different view. Fortunately, does. I don't think it changes it so as much as people think it does, especially when it's related to Christianity, uh, which right. is why I found your podcast so interesting and the idea of 
talking about it also really important. Well, why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about about your early life? How'd you get started? Uh, were there any particular religious traditions or life events that shaped the you know trajectory of your spiritual life? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'd totally get into all of that. I think you know I, since we, since we are kind of talking about both Christianity and psychedelics, as the name of your podcast is. I think that one of the things I start off with when I discuss with people is I explain to them that none of this was me using drugs my whole life, <laughs> right? I always talk about it, that I was a very goody-two-shoes Christian uh, and also a scientist, and I basically was a book nerd. So my my early life was, my family was from Colorado originally until I was seven, and then we moved to Dallas, Texas. And when I moved to Dallas at seven, and I don't know what happened before seven, but I only have one or two images from when I was in Colorado. I honestly don't know how people remember things under the age of seven, because I didn't. Uh, so pretty much my whole life I remembered growing up was in Dallas. And Dallas, where we were, was it was on the outskirts of Dallas, actually a town called Flower Mound, Texas. And the reason that's important is... In our backyard was horses and cows, but we were right on the edge of the city, kind of. You know, it was probably 40 minutes to get into Dallas, but it was like a frontier zone of the city. And it wasn't really mm -hmm. a city kid. Um, but as I grew up, by the time I was in college, everything was a concrete jungle. There was targets and all the places I grew up fishing at in the backyard were now parking lots. And, and that kind of affected me and affected my journey as a biologist later. But also being in Texas affected me because I remember early on in school learning how to communicate with strangers. And one of the first questions you'd ask is, what is their name? And then you'd ask what church they go to. That was just common. It's like, you know, later on, you would not say that. You would not ask people what church you go to. That would be off the limits. But yeah, so I, I grew up early in a Methodist church, being an acolyte, doing, and I was very responsible, lighting the candles at the <laughs> altar. And then in high school, uh, actually, yeah, like eighth, ninth grade, my friends in in the high school invited me to a Bible study, which was at a Bible church, Crossroads Bible Church. And that was very influential to me because the actual sermons were great. But what I really got out of the whole childhood experience is learning to talk about deep topics with my friends in a Bible study every week. And I didn't realize that most kids don't get that. You know, it, it was almost like a therapy session for me. Mm -hmm every week and it really grounded me and all those friends are still basically my five or six best friends and that's you know I, I left 22 years ago that was a long time ago but still we chat all the time and it's the people that I have the biggest connection to and can actually talk about the deepest things with mm. so yeah and um, that was kind of the early life growing up but then at the same time, I was in this world of science, which has a little bit of a conflict. That kind of is the next mm -hmm. step, I suppose. But that that was early on. It was very influential. Yeah, it's interesting you, you say that. I just it occurred to me that my closest friends today are the people that as a very, very young adult, 
that I had all those theological conversations with. So similarly, I thought, I guess maybe um, when you experience that kind of spiritual shaping of your ideas with a certain group of people, it gives you a, a level of connectedness that, that tends to survive over the years and the distance uh, that comes between us, you know, as we age. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it also, it also, I suppose the realization that I have later is that it wasn't me being attracted originally to Christianity because I saw anything to it. It just was part of my life growing up. And I remember at some point in high school thinking, You know, it would be very valuable for me to look at all the other religions. And then wouldn't it be great if at the end I decided that Christianity was one of the best routes and that I really should probably do that? Because if not, how was I to know if that was the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Right. So that was an important thought that I had. And um, while I haven't like gone and read all the different books of different religions, I've kind of thought through that a little bit. You know, how did that trajectory shape your future? Like education, you were, you took an active interest in science. Um, Mm -hmm. So did you pursue a science path in high school or college? And Well, it was really interesting. Yeah. Because of those group of friends, I had two of them who wanted to get into theology. So they went off to school essentially to, to be a pastor and so they got really deep into it and deep into like all the philosophical questions that you study at, in college. Um, I was one of the few people who went into biology. I had a couple of friends doing one in engineering and one in chemistry, but they're such different fields. They're kind of talking about the, you know, what are the math the questions you need to ask to get a certain solution? Whereas in biology, one of the hot topics, especially in the late 90s, was this idea of evolution and creation like where where do we sit and it it was this weird thing because i felt like as an 18 year old wouldn't it be great if i could through my research as a as a biologist in my career find that one example that say disproved evolution or not necessarily disproved it but was like oh see look creation actually is a thing because I found this butterfly that doesn't fit the evolutionary pathway. And they're like, wouldn't that be amazing? And this is very naive biologist coming into the whole thing. (laughs) And so I actually studied evolution quite heavily. And I used to be part of these debates as a freshman and a sophomore in college. They were these evolution creation debates. And I was always on the side of creation not in a fundamentalist, like God was this mythical creature who who created everything and then it just happened. But I was kind of arguing it with some of these uh, basic science principles at the time. Like it was like, oh, the second law of thermodynamics says that everything will deteriorate. But look, it doesn't deteriorate. So I'm using science to say, how could evolution be true? And, th- and then there were different examples that I give. So we'd have these debates. But then at the same time, what was happening is I was actually really studying evolution and evolutionary theory and realized that it is a very powerful theory for describing a lot of things and that it's actually kind of difficult to just throw it all out the window in kind of the way the creation arguments were going at the time because there were a lot of school debates like should should we teach creation and evolution? And it just felt a little 
primitive, I suppose, over time for people to be pushing the argument of throwing out the teaching of evolution because it is a powerful theory um, and it describes a lot of things. And so that was a little bit disappointing for me. <laughs> Not disappointing in that it didn't exist, but it was like broadening my horizon and then disappointing that people weren't also doing the work to research how things actually work and testing things and so, so there was a little bit of a divide as I started getting older and more educated between myself and just basic fundamentalist Christian types. And I should point back to the fact that when I was at the Bible church in Texas, still uh, learning a lot with all my friends, our pastor was an interesting character. And it made it hard finding a church later because our pastor was a atheist who went to school to try to disprove the Bible, and in doing so became a Christian because of all the historical work that he did trying to figure things out. And so in the the lessons that we have, and basically the whole church family was quite, um, it felt like you were going to a lecture every Sunday, and it was like, let's look at the Greek, and let's look at the Hebrew, and let's look at the context of all these historical documents. So it was, it was so far from you know, the idea of speaking tongues and let's just believe because it was very much uh, influenced by the facts that are in this book. And let's let's use it to see how we can help ourselves in the future moving forward. And it made it hard finding a good church after I left. You know, I went to school uh, originally in Miami um, and I had a, and I had a good group in college there to hang out with. But then I went to Australia to do research on the Great Barrier Reef. And, and Australia is way less Christian than the US. So it was really difficult to find a group. Um, and then from there, I went to Oregon, which all Pacific Northwest's also a little not Texas. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there, I went to Hawaii. I moved around 12 times, in fact, before I was 30, 12 different states that I lived in for more than three months. So it was a lot of moving, and so it made it a little bit difficult to stay as grounded as I, as I wanted to be early, early in that time. But it also allowed me to really view the world how the science community sees it, and I think that was valuable in my Christian journey because I think a lot of Christians fail to see how the, the secular world th sees things because they're just not living in it, and they see themselves at odds with that that group of people. And so I could walk both worlds very easily. And in fact, I realized that one of the things I needed to do in the sciences is just not talk about my background. So almost nobody knows about my background. Mm. <laughs> even even till this day, I, I mention it in a few videos, but it's somewhat irrelevant to the education that I'm doing, but at the same time, something that I'm more willing to talk about. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's unfortunate, you know, both the scientific community and the religious community both use straw man arguments to mm. criticize each other. And so if you're steeped in one or the other, you have these really hardened biases and it makes it difficult for the fundamentalist Christian person to even receive just relevant information from the scientific community because they see them as somewhat at, at odds with their principles. And mm. the scientific community views the religious community as naive people who believe in basic mythology. And so yeah. 
There's right. just a there's right. a lack of respect on both sides. And there is unfortunately a great gulf between the two groups, which I'm beginning to see um, a little bit of a healing of that rift. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at one point it was the church who was sponsoring all the science. We're only a few and hundred years away from that. So Yeah. And I, I didn't realize at the time, but that is kind of the path that I followed as well, was obviously young Christian. And I just wanted to figure out how the world worked. And so I was using the scientific method is really all it was to figure things out. And there are not that many problems with the two, unless you really draw a distinct line in the sand with a fundamentalist belief and modern scientific understanding of the world. You know, and I talk about the creation versus evolution thing, for instance. I mean, it's really hard to draw a line in the sand and say the earth was only formed in seven days and then look at the science and how it looks like the earth was formed and all the animals came and be like, there's zero way (laughs) it was seven days, seven actual days. I mean, but that's my view on it. And I think if you if you look at the whole Bible more as a collection of books and a storytelling that is not basically the scientific truth told via people, then it's a completely different story. And that's how I see things now. And I don't think that that has, there's any problem viewing things that way. Although my mom would disagree. <laughs> of course, My mom continually <clears throat> bites me on this. I'm like, it's not an issue, mom. It's fine. <laughs> uh... I think we're all a little a little too certain of our of our paradigms. And I think that uh, if we just have a little bit of curiosity about each other's positions, that would get us a lot closer to understanding each other and understanding uh, God and understanding the universe. Well, and I and maybe maybe this is something that we should explore a little bit towards the end of the podcast. But my feel of it all is. Science really does help us understand the world. It helps us have a set of tools that we can look at the world and say, is this true or is this not true? But it doesn't give us a path towards how do we live properly, Mm -hmm. right? And and more people that I hear say that, I fully agree. That's how I've always felt. It's the thing I feel like our little group in Texas did was it helped me understand like, how do you talk about love? How do you be the best person that you can be? Like science can't tell you those things. It, it Like in no form can it. <laughs> and so that's to me what Christianity is in so many ways. It's not a book that says, here's how the world was formed. And yet that's what everyone argues about. It's a, it's about, here's the best way to live and how to move forward in the life in life. And I feel in some ways I feel, I feel it's unfortunate that a lot of people don't even have a glimpse of that and that they're seeing it in a completely biased and wrong way. You know, Christians get a bad reputation for for some things that get done by people who claim to be Christians, whether or not that's true or not, you know, but it's um, going back to the you know Spanish uh, massacres and the conquistadors and the you know, colonization, and people use those old arguments to say here's what Christians are, but it's you know unfortunate because that's not what the way always the way I see it. Right, <laughs> it's definitely so, not the way I see it, especially if you look at the books. That's not how it's shown. Right. And so much of history, we explain or view through the lens of religion. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes that was really politics. And 
foreign policy, you know, acting out on a world stage. So take your example for a case in point, the Spanish coming to Mesoamerica. Um, it's very easy to categorize those groups as the Christian group came to the pagan land, uh, kind of, sort of. So you had people from a country that was largely Christian that came to a land of pagans who probably weren't necessarily all bad people. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's like we have to separate the religious aspect from the political and territorial boundaries that are going on on the globe and the and, and stage. Mm -hmm. You know, when I, when I, when we were children, we heard a lot about the fighting in Northern Ireland. And that mm -hmm. was always couched in terms of the Catholics versus the Protestants. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm not a, an expert on this topic, but once I realized that, no, that's actually a fight between a sovereign Ireland and a colonizing England. You know, that's what's going on there. So England was a Protestant nation. Ireland was a Catholic nation, but it wasn't actually like Christians going to war each other with each other over which church to worship in. You know, these were like political boundaries that were being fought over, but it was always nested in terms of this religious war. I think oftentimes those are just political battles that um, just happen to be fought by people of opposing religious viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, it's well, I mean, necessarily and religious people fighting religious people for religious reasons. It's usually of political motivations. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't have a ton of background with the history because my background was biology, but I I think you're right on a lot of those fronts. Yeah. Well, how did you uh how did your career begin to manifest? I know you've got got a lot of different educational background. Um Yeah. So uh, I I still tell people I'm a biologist and I went to schools to be a biologist. I got a ended up going to Hawaii to do a well, I was doing a PhD, but ended up just doing a master's in marine science. And I was looking at behavioral ecology of these little fish that live on the reef called shrimp gobies. And they, it's this cool relationship. It's a fish that lives in a burrow with a shrimp and they each look out for each other. So the fish has eyes. Shrimp doesn't really have eyes. And the shrimp digs the hole though. Fish can't dig the hole. So one sense that sets out as a sentinel on the front and then the shrimp, you know, does its thing. And it's this weird interspecies relationship where they live together, but yet Nobody really cared about them because they were they weren't tuna or sharks, you know, and so I studied something that was really interesting to me and not many people had studied before, but it was hard economically for that to be viable to get grants and stuff. And in the process of doing my what ended up being my master's, I got a video camera and an underwater housing to film these shrimp gobies. Because if you're there, you basically simulate a giant predator and they behave very differently. So I had to set up all these remote cameras and essentially spy on these fish, which was really fun, actually, because I'd sit on the beach with, you know, my TV screen and just record them and then watch it later. But what happened was that I had tools to be able to give amazing presentations, put it that way. 
because of what I was doing for my research. And I just decided that what I wanted to do was make sure that no presentation I ever went to in the future was boring <laughs> for myself. And then I helped all my friends make their presentations amazing too, because that was my biggest pet peeve in school. It was the biggest problem I saw was that these presentations we'd go to every Friday and then every you know, few weeks for seminars were just so difficult. Uh, I also at the time was teaching uh, undergraduate biology classes and then also leading nature tours as a side job. So I'd probably lead five or six nature tours, four-hour tours on the weekends. And that was in uh, Hawaii? That was in Hawaii, so. yeah. So, <clears throat> so my life was basically doing this research and doing presentations of all different sorts. And so I got practice looking at people and seeing when their eyes lit up. In the classroom, they loved the videos. In the wild, they loved when I gave interesting tidbits of this or that. And so I, I started to get a feel for what I guess what I would say the common person or what students and people who were somewhat interested in nature enjoyed. And I was given an opportunity as a as an educator to make a series of videos for the other biology classes because this was in 2001 and we were given these old DVDs from like 1989 to talk to teach our classes with and nobody liked them nobody sh showed them because that was the best thing you had so i replaced the entire biology educational content in in the biology department uh, for undergraduate biology classes and that was like an initial paycheck it wasn't a ton but i started to over time slowly take up uh, video production. And then I saw that there was a new school in Montana that you could get a master's degree in science and natural history filmmaking. And I was like, that sounds like the direction I want to go. So I actually cut what was supposed to be my PhD early into a master's, applied for this program in Montana, got in, and then that's where I was next, was in Montana with a handful of people. It was, I think, 12 in each cohort. And we were learning to basically be natural history filmmakers on par with National Geographic and BBC and Discovery and learn to write grants and apply for film projects. And that was what I did. Now, I was ahead of everybody else in my cohort because you had to have a biology background of some sort, but a lot of people just had undergrads. And then you didn't really have to have any filmmaking background, but I had already been making films for two and a half years on top of that, you know, playing with a camera since I was eighth grade, maybe seventh, eighth grade, making short James Bond style movies. So I had a lot, a lot of uh, direction in what I wanted to do. I had a website at the time called Explore Biodiversity. And then another one I created at the same time called The Wild Classroom, where we basically were creating resources for biologists to sh teach biology. Everything from, you know, we did talk about evolution all the way to, the cell cells and mitochondria and genetics and and I just found that people the kids found the topics more interesting if they knew why they were learning them and that videos gave you a path that you could see the application outside of the classroom. I guess that's the simple way of explaining it. <laughs> and and you know what I learned from the nature tours in Hawaii is that you have to focus on your audience and talk about things differently than you might as a biologist. For example, on the nature tours, Hawaii is home to 99% of the animals that are found in Hawaii are found nowhere else in the world, at least 
before Columbus and before all of the invasive species came. But you go into the hills and it's impossible to talk about evolution because everything is different and is not found anywhere else in the world. But they're very similar to some animals that live on islands around. But you wouldn't say the E word is what we would call it. You wouldn't talk about evolution until the end of the tour. You talk about how things adapted and how they changed and how they got ways to eat different fruits here on the islands. And then you'd say, well, see, this is a different species and that's what we call evolution. And so you do the same thing in your videos. You have to really cue in to the people you're talking to and find ways of using language that they can relate to and then introduce the topic so that by the end, they're on the same page with you. I suppose that's kind of an interesting way to, to talk about your audience, but that's what I learned early on. And that's what I've been kind of doing since. And my audience early on was biologists. So I also learned to speak the language of biologists, mm -hmm. which was a different path. So that was kind of the introduction to the filmmaking and how I integrated biology. <clears throat> uh, although you probably weren't aware, that's great preparation for uh, having a uh, a popular YouTube channel. So, <laughs> Well, it was great. And I get a lot of kids ask me, and I say kids, like maybe in the early 20s, ask me, how do you how do they get into doing what I'm doing? And I don't know how to tell them because there's zero way they could have the same path. <laughs> Everyone has their own path. But I do say that it, those were some of the things that helped learning to teach and learning to be a guide, you know, like find, finding ways to learn how to talk with people. That, those were two valuable things that I had. And at the same time, I was making a film every three or four days because I had to for these classes, just shorts to show people. So if there's a way that you can get used to having a camera and talking about things, that's really important. Yeah, just uh, practice and repetition goes a long ways. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Which is what you're doing too, of course, yeah. with this right. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm still I'm still early in this process. I, <clears throat> I have high hopes I will I will improve radically. Well, I've been I've been watching your YouTube channel for uh, I guess about a year um, with my family. We've really enjoyed all you know all the videos. I mean, your channel is excellent. It's educational. It's entertaining. It's family friendly. You got videos on science, nature, plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, uh, survival skills, building fires, rope, uh, knot tying. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, even uh, psychedelics and uh, how to build an igloo. I mean, <laughs> a little bit of. I, well, of I will say you. You know, you. I'm glad that you say it's family friendly because that's always the point. I want my kids to be able to watch it, and they're my kids are nine and eleven right now. So I always preview it for with the family before I release it, and they tell me I watch them, and if they get disinterested, then I know mm. I need to spice it up a little bit more. So it's hard to make a vi video that's appealing to a nine and 11 year old, especially uh, who has ADHD, my oldest does. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, yeah, I got videos on psychedelics and a lot of ethnobotanical type things, which include cultural uses of drugs. How do you talk about those topics and make it kid appropriate? And that's tricky. And hopefully something that I'm do talk about, because I definitely don't want to glorify any of the use of entheogens. Partly that's YouTube's rules, but also, you know, kids will eventually find out a lot of things and you're way better off talking about the science behind things mm. and doing it in a appropriate way for the culture that we live in. 
I think that they're very accepting to hear those and listen to some of the nuance. Absolutely. Yeah. I, what little I knew about psychedelics as a, as a child, I learned, you know, from, uh, from keg parties and, and, uh, things like that. And so, <laughs> right. The, the science, Maybe not the best right. route to learn about your psychedelics <clears throat> is from your buddies at a party. Yeah. The science didn't come until just a few years ago, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. I think if we give people the tools to understand the world at a young age, whenever they eventually interface with anything, uh, psychedelics, uh, automobiles, uh, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, the human, the proper human diet, you know, once you, <clears throat> if you know the science, once you're, you interface with the, with those events or substances or whatever, you have the you have the tools to make sound judgment. You, you have the wisdom of how these things are going to affect your body, your mind, your relationships. You're able to make um, intelligent choices. But if we just pretend like these things don't exist, then people grow up naive, and then suddenly they're interfacing with something that they have no context for. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, what know, I worry about is we grew up in the period in the '90s. And I think it's even up until now. I mean, the idea of don't do drugs, like at all costs, say no to drugs. But what I worry is that that's a really easy explanation. And yet the truth is drugs are everywhere. And not I'm not even just talking bad drugs. Caffeine is a drug. I just had some this morning. Caffeine is a drug. Aspirin is a drug. Once kids start to realize that not all drugs are bad, whether or not they stumble upon it at a keg party, or they just come to this realization that any chemical you're putting into your body is essentially a drug if it has an interaction to your body, then they start to lose faith in the the whole premise of the don't do drugs. And so, you know, I try to teach my kids that there is, you know, you'll definitely learn in school, don't do drugs. And you definitely should never do any drugs that a friend just asks you to do unless you've looked into it yourself and you can determine if it's safe or not, um, which is something very difficult to do as a stu- as a kid. Mm-hmm. But that obviously there are some drugs that could help you, all the medicines, but you know you have to just be real careful with everything. And I told them they can always come to me and talk about different things and I can help help guide them on that. Definitely advice. don't do it at a party from some friend who thinks they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. so that's important. Excellent advice. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of of psychedelics, you mm-hmm. know, you have some videos on your YouTube channel. You begin to discuss psychedelics like ketamine, psilocybin, the Amanita muscaria mushroom. Um, right. What What got psychedelics on your radar? How did you first? decide to start investigating the topic. Yeah. So when I was in Hawaii, I actually took a class called psychoactive drug plants, which was a difficult class to explain to my professors and advisors in given that I was studying fish behavior. <laughs> you know, you can imagine as a as a grad student you're allowed to take any class that you want and you're you're you have meetings with your advisors and they look over the list of classes that you're taking and they're like why are you taking this one and i had to be like i swear i did not do any drugs at all i'm just very curious about this and 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 i was it was taught by this guy uh, dr mark merlin which is a fantastic name for a professor <laughs> you know my dr merlin 
is teaching about drug plants. And the class went through all of the top drug plants that were used culturally, especially the ones that they knew. One of the books that we had was actually, I had it right here, Plants of the Gods, uh, which was written by Richard Schultes and Albert Hoffman, who were two of the classic people behind many of the psychedelic drugs in the 50s and understanding magic mushrooms, LSD, and then the cultural uses of of all these things. And so we went through and I it just kind of was blowing my mind because I grew up in Texas. All I knew about was people using heroin and overdosing, which was really common in our high school, and then people using tobacco and alcohol. That's all I knew about. And so it opened my eyes to a whole new world. I ended up doing my paper at the end of the year on hallucinogenic cacti. All of this was all theoretical, but it was fascinating to me that there were 23 species of cacti that were psychedelic, had psychedelic properties to it. I actually put that paper up online in 19, when was it? 2001, (laughs) right at the early stage of the internet. It was my most popular page because I went through and I looked at all the literature, did like a literature search of psychoactive cacti and, and nothing was online about it. Anyways, the point is I had an introduction in 2001 to this and I was always interested in it yet for obvious reasons, I had no path to or saw any path of doing that. I wasn't going to become an ethnobotanist. I was a fish biologist. And then I started telling films, uh, telling stories via film. I kept it in the back of my mind for almost 20 years. Some of the times I tried to integrate it in, uh, in 2011, which would have been almost 10 years later, we worked with Pearson Publishing to try to introduce mushrooms into the high school classrooms. Um, I knew that mushrooms were culturally used by a lot of people. But and not just psychoactively, but like medicinally and in many different forms, but that it was almost impossible to get that into the classrooms. Nobody wanted to hear anything other than don't touch mushrooms. They could kill you. And so it was difficult to do that in in the process. We met a lot of interesting mycologists trying to tell these stories for high school classrooms, which as a side note, we made almost 200 films that were used by high school, middle school and elementary classrooms via Pearson Publishing, who owned 55% of the market share. So whether kids knew it or not, from about 2011 until now, about 55% of kids have seen some of our videos in their classrooms, which is kind of a fun side note. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I basically just had it on my radar that these things are interesting. And I tried pitching some different TV shows between 2011 and 2019 about different psychoactive plants and everybody's response was plants aren't interesting enough nobody will fund a tv show about plants there's like it has to be more immersive and so i said well maybe one of the things that we can do is i'll i'll try these different plants and the response was well that would just be you getting on and doing drugs and nobody's going to fund that because that looks terrible And I said, well, what if I've never tried any drugs? Like, you know, I'm coming in completely new, mostly looking at the science of these things, but is that an interesting angle? And still nobody would go and buy into that idea. HBO did end up later doing a series on, it was a very similar premise. Uh, I forget the guy's name. Yeah, people will remember it. He he basically had a different psychoactive plant for every episode and then did them on camera. It was a very interesting show. But 
I still didn't think it would be a good topic because of what everyone told me. That was until I more or less decided I was done with TV. Um, in 2016 and 17, I did a TV show called Secrets of the Underground. Um, and then I also did a show, Life After Chernobyl. I did What on Earth. In total, I was a host for about 25 different TV shows. Uh, some people don't know that if they only see my YouTube stuff. But I just decided that I hated TV in, in part because I liked the process of doing TV except for the part that I felt like a pawn in somebody else's story. They weren't my stories. I didn't come up with them. And much of the time as a host, you're just walking in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. They say, walk over here, walk over there. And then you'll do the narration afterwards. And you don't even have much input into the narration other than you can push back a little bit, but then you feel like you're letting everyone down by pushing back on their story. And you also don't have much control of your future. So on the side, I kept doing little short YouTube videos, even though I made zero money on them from about 2012 to 2019. And I occasionally would have some success. And that's what led to my YouTube channel was occasional successes, but also hoping that I could make my own future the way I wanted it to be and not just the way the networks did. My most popular video took off two years ago or a year and a half ago, and it was on Amanita muscaria, which is the psychoactive uh, red mushroom with white spots that's in Mario Brothers. Mm -hmm. um, I, I say that just because it's an easy way to explain what it is. People more or less know what that mushroom is, but don't know a whole lot about it. And that story I have been telling people for 20 years since I took that ethnobotany class, and I found that everybody finds it interesting. I didn't think the video would take off. I just saw it in the forest and was like, oh, we need to do a film on this because here it is. This is very pretty, not really common to find it, if you're, especially if you're not looking for it. Right. Total now, I think it has over 5 million views between the two shorts I put out. And that helped launch what I'm doing now to some degree. Wow. But it's wow. still not really the the psycho or the psychedelic version. <laughs> right. Well, I appreciate you <clears throat> giving that backstory because, you know, you mentioned earlier about how young people, uh, ask you how they could get started in a career like this. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. You were working on this, you know, quietly in your free time for the better part of 10 years before things took off. So, um, oh, I yeah. I mean, I wish I could explain to kids that ask me those questions how much work it's going to be to get to do the thing that seems very fun on camera. <laughs> <laughs> and how much of the hard work you're going to also have to do. Like, I need to explain that I've been doing YouTube for almost no pay and have almost 400 videos and almost none of that paid the bills. And so I was doing all these other things that I could do through using my skills as a filmmaker that I almost never talk about. One of them is, for instance, um, if you take a Hunter Ed class, I've done all the videos for Hunter Ed for what is probably the the one you're going to find. Yeah, they own like 90% of the market share. I also oh. did Boater Ed and Archery Ed and Snowmobile Ed. And those were things I never told people in the sciences because people, this is another good example. You know, we talk about the Christian and science divide. Well, the environmentalist and hunter divide is quite high. Mm -hmm. So all my friends in the sciences are environmentalists and my family had a background with hunting and fishing. 
And now I'm the face of hunting and fishing. Yet I felt like I couldn't tell anyone. I never post on social that I like do all these hunting videos, <laughs> but education. I don't actually have the time to to hunt myself, but I know how to make good educational films. And I, I wanted to try to instill a little bit of a different ethic into what seemed to be like a machismo hunter community mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. And I think we did that successfully. So I'm pretty proud of those videos. I'm now talking about it a little bit more because I think there's a need to try to pull both sides back towards the middle, which is understanding the human use of the environment and that hunting and fishing is quite a natural human thing to do. Absolutely. I don't know if you've uh, <clears throat> ran across any of Steve Ranella's content, uh, meat, mm. eater, meat Eater. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Actually, he's up in Montana where I did my master's yeah. degree and a lot of my friends work on his TV show. Yeah, he does a really good job of bringing a responsible conservation, you know, thought process to the hunting community. And yeah, exactly. Um, I appreciate a lot of what he's done in that regard, because when I was young, any kind of video content in the hunting and fishing space, it was very, it was almost like a Southern caricature. You know, it was, it was very, like Billy Bob's bass fishing, you know, and it just, it didn't bring a, a thoughtful, uh, intentional, uh, science-based conservation minded kind of approach to the hunting and fishing space. Mm -hmm. and, and I and don't I, know. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> Honestly, a lot of people in uh, the sportsman community are very oriented towards conservation. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like the the whole community of sportsmanship, hunting and fishing has been kind of smeared by that kind of 80s, 90s uh, entertainment. Uh, yeah, you know? and I think Hollywood didn't understand hunting. And so a lot of the portrayal of hunting was a character of a hillbilly out in the woods who uh, is rough and not very respectful to nature <laughs> and i think that they you need the new age needed a champion you know several people who could show that it's not that you know and i talked to many hunter ed instructors and they were all worried that hunting is failing and that we need to increase the group of people who are hunting and yet i don't think they anticipated where things would be moving the biggest increase in hunting and fishing is in the food to fork movement uh, and I don't know if you've heard of that movement. I don't exactly know how to describe it other than it's a lot of people who are very uh, keen on having a good, healthy lifestyle and they want food that is sustainably harvested. And often there's people in the cities who are healthy and they're learning to hunt for that purpose. And so it's bringing out this new, or some people call it a hipster hunter, which is not exactly mm -hmm. the way to say it, but like that movement and so i can right. imagine these hunter ed folks being like oh my gosh that's where we need to go bring in hipster hunters no 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 let's three things <laughs> but but I, I think we are preserving hunting it's just changing how we're doing it in the future anyways that's that's just to say that i've become more open to the idea of talking about these different things in my life that don't seem to be the status quo in the sciences and i'm happy that that we can see some nuance. Yeah. I, I sympathize, you know, um, my lifestyle up until very recently was, you know, a very conservative Christian, you know, context, uh, mm. blue, co blue collar family lifestyle in the country. And 
Likewise, talking about psychedelics is not something that tends to mesh with that lifestyle in polite company. So it's it's, it's very been... true, isn't it? I don't understand why that is. I It seems to me, you've talked to a lot of guests, it, it's all about the stereotype and the baggage that comes with psychedelics, I can imagine. Would you yeah. think that's kind of the... Yeah, and I don't blame anyone. I mean, we, you know... Yeah. We, for generations, we've been raised with very good intentions. You know, people just have the trope, you know, don't do drugs. And so with that as the backdrop for all of our education and our kind of social constructs, you're never going to even entertain, you know, a scientific or investigating approach to a topic like psychedelics. You just, you put it in that box of uh, taboos and there it shall remain. And so it's very hard for people who take their, what you might call their civic duty, their spiritual and family responsibilities into consideration that they would spend their time investigating something like, quote unquote, drugs. So it, it's completely understandable. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I'm also trying to wrap my head around what is the relationship between psychedelics <laughs> and the science that I have dove into so heavily. My role as an educator, because that's what I'm doing with the videos, and uh, Christianity, which is kind of how I see the world as what is the best path to be as a human, something like that. Well, if, if you could tell us, like, how did you first make the decision to integrate these compounds into your life? And then not only that, but you also decided to you know, use yourself as a guinea pigs to some degree in your right. in your video content and and take your viewers on that journey as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to do that? That's a pretty big step. Sure, sure. Well, I I do a lot of reading, and the person I came across that I found really fascinating uh, was Michael Pollan, who wrote How to Change Your Mind. It has become a classic now, and it's called the Michael Pollan effect on psychedelics, where he was appealing to, he's a, now a Berkeley professor or was a Berkeley professor, and talked about um, his view on psychedelics and how he started looking at the science that was happening at the time. I think if I didn't read that book, I might not have been so willing to approach the topic, but I did. And here is a very rational science educator who didn't really try, well, I think he did try some early in his life, but basically didn't try it till he was 60 and didn't have any problems with it and did it very responsibly. And so this was around the summer when I was 39, I was reading that book or re read the book twice and then found out that my brother-in-law had access to mushrooms <laughs> and was like, yeah, we could do mushrooms at any time if you want. And, and I said, yeah, let's let's see if we can make that happen at some point. Still not knowing how I would ever make it happen. But it was having a bit of a midlife crisis. I was 39. My TV careers was a little bit waning. It was very frustrating. I have a family of, you know, my kids are four and no, I guess they're like five and eight or something. Uh, so I'm trying to support my family. I'm trying to do a creative career, which is challenging because it's not just wake up and do the daily grind and think about fun stuff. I've got to be creative. 
So it's was using multiple parts of my brain and I didn't know if I could even make a career with it. So I realized I had depression, I think some form of depression, even though it's, you know, maybe could just be classified as a midlife crisis. Um, whatever it was, I couldn't sleep at night. I was having to go to the doctor and, and get some anti-anxiety pills, which I should never have been on. We should talk about that later because that relates to the benefits of some of these mushrooms. And it was just troubling. I knew I had problems that need to be solved. And from all of the information that I could read, psychedelics, in particular mushrooms, because I wasn't going to do LSD, could help me unlock what were some of the problems and help me solve these difficult things. So I got a call one afternoon in the middle of the summer from my brother-in-law and said, hey, if you want, I'm going up into the mountains with my buddy. And he has some mushrooms and we could all do mushrooms together. And my wife knew I had been wanting to do these for like 20 years, but I just needed the right opportunity. And I jumped on it and I said, okay, I'm going to go up to the mountain for two days if you're okay with that. And fortunately, she's the most supportive person ever and agreed with the what I had been reading. And I went up into the mountains. Uh, I arrived at like noon. We talked through intention. I had gone through, I had been learning all of the things. <laughs> on the way up, I had been trying to deal with things with my dad, um, solve whatever issues we were having. I felt like my dad didn't value the work that I was doing, uh, was really being really hard on me. I was also listening at the time to Jordan Peterson podcasts on the drive up, which probably influenced what I experienced later. Um, and then by one o'clock was taking these mushrooms on the top of a mountain in the middle of the Appalachian mountains and on a walk and just had these mind blowing realizations that I did not expect to happen. And they were, it wasn't even a large dose of mushrooms for people who know mushrooms. I was only at 1.7 grams. So it wasn't that much, but I was seeing all of these historical figures in my mind. I The first thing that really came to me was I saw an image of Moses on Mount Sinai. I was on top of a mountain here and and things were coming to me. And I was I realized, oh, this seems maybe like what happened to Moses. He was on a mountain in a bush, started burning and talking to him and telling him things like, you shouldn't kill people, which seems so obvious. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, I wonder if he was on psychedelic drugs. He must have been, because this seems now so clear. <laughs> and who knows, I'm not going to hypothesize on that, but I know other people have in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and other things happened to me. I, re I saw a vision of my dad as a kid and, you know, I always see my dad as an old guy who was hard on me. And now I saw him as a kid who just got older and is trying to do his best. But, you know, I have two kids. I saw him as one of my kids basically. And he has no idea what he's doing. He's just trying to do the best thing and he has good intentions. And that changed things tremendously for me. And really healed some of my relationship with my dad almost instantly because I just saw it from a new perspective. And so, so there were you know a few other things I had at the time. I was really trying to figure out what to do with my company, Untamed Science, because my best friend Jonas, who who works on it with me, we just couldn't see eye to eye on the vision. I wanted to be online and doing things. He he wanted to do things a little bit bigger form. 
and it was difficult and I didn't know how to solve that. And I had this realization that I don't have to solve it. I actually could just do it, do my own thing in a slightly different way. We could keep the company that we have, but I could do my own thing. And I got this uh, vision for Stone Age Man, which is what I have now. And I didn't have that before. And I was just blown away by the fact that it didn't feel like doing drugs irresponsibly. Um, it felt like I was digging into my consciousness and able to unlock things that for some reason I was stuck on. And the other thing that was really amazing to me is that I fell asleep that night, you know, at that point still kind of in it. And all I wanted to do when I woke up was get super healthy. You know, I woke up and went for a run right away. And then I, I was supposed to hang out with those guys for the rest of the afternoon. But all I wanted to do was get back to my family and be the best dad that I could and really like figure things out. And it changed how I viewed quote unquote drugs a lot because here's a compound that was the opposite of what you're told about drugs, that drugs will mess you up and will lead to addictions and really just mess up your life. It actually helped me clean up my life. And it was it was difficult going through all those visions, but afterwards I felt like an even better person. Mm -hmm. And and you know, I didn't use anything for another almost year and a half. Yeah, year and a half. But it just it definitely like was a vision that I that I couldn't forget, and then it made me research a lot over the next year and a half before I did any more experimentation. That's when about the Amanita video came out, but mm -hmm. that was my introduction to it all, and more or less how it manifested itself. Well, thank you for sharing that. Were there any spiritual implications from your experience there on the mountain? Did you have any take homes, and did it in, kind of uh, in any way inform your religious perspective? Um, yeah, you know, I know a lot of people, what ends up happening is that I, I have a lot of friends who tell me that they were atheists. And then as soon as they use mushrooms, they couldn't be atheist anymore. They saw things that there is some sort of God. You know, I came from a different perspective and that I, I was quite aware in my own self that there was a God, you know, I spend time meditating and praying and it gives me quite a bit of comfort um, maybe as a scientist, I could step back and look at it and say, well, I'm acting as if there's a God. And for some reason that gives me comfort. So who knows what that is, but it, but it was really helpful. And then I, I found that in our own life, what we had is we had these two young kids who didn't have a church because I kept looking for a pastor who was the perfect pastor, like the one that I grew up in. It really turns me off if pastors my perspective, start speaking in tongues. And if I'm in the audience and I'm thinking, what do you even listen to what you're saying? That's weird. Like, that's not, what, what do you're not even looking at the Hebrew and the Greek context to that? You know, that's it's so weird to think, but I realized that it, it, it was around that time and it, maybe it was right after, I'm not sure. It was, it was somewhat similar. Uh, we just decided that instead of stumbling around at diff to different churches, we just needed to find one to get the kids mixed into it and have a church family and didn't have to be the perfect one. And I think that was very helpful, but it, it wasn't a, a huge aha moment. It was more of a little bit of a confirmation. And actually, I think the, the biggest 
realization that I started to have was related to what I said about Moses <laughs> was this idea that, huh, I wonder if some of the people from the Bible were actually using psychedelics because it sure makes sense. The realizations that I'm having, did you need to be a better person and you need to do all these things? That seems very Christian, these realizations that I have. And I, I guess part of what I was thinking through was, is it because of the history that I have as a Christian that these realizations seemed very Christian, you know, so to speak, mm -hmm. or were they unveiling some sort of fundamental truth as humans that then Christianity had stumbled upon as well, something like that, right? And right. Um, so, so those were things I started thinking about more and more, and actually stuff I've really been diving into lately with with different people I listen to and and trying to unlock it. But as we discussed before this podcast happened, I don't get the chance to talk through them very often, especially on podcasts, because most people see me just as a scientist as an and then as an educator. They don't explore some of these more nuanced issues, which, you know, bring up religion. That's kind of a tricky topic that doesn't have much of my background mixed into it. It's uh it's it's often difficult to it's like a chicken and the egg scenario. Like so did did the religion influence our understanding of the spiritual realm that we to some degree enter when we have a psychedelic experience, or is the psychedelic experience giving us the insight to understand uh the spiritual world? You know, and I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think one of my hesitations moving forward that I just should throw out there and I'm trying to figure out where it lies is a bunch of the people that I know that start on psychedelics who have zero religious background. So in other words, no grounding in some sort of religious tradition. Um, maybe they were atheists before. The mushrooms can kind of show them a different reality. And I think... It often then makes them very spiritual. Um, they realize something else is out there. But a lot of people drift towards this idea of animism, um, which I, I think is the right word, but more or less attributing spiritual value to every animal or plant that they come across, which you know, I, I don't exactly know how to talk about that other than some people talk about the mushroom God or the mushroom voice or the tree gods. And it's like, okay, well, that feels very primal and um, feels like maybe there's some issue constantly coming back and saying the mushroom told me to do this or that. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Although I can see where that comes from. And so I, I want to try to think through where modern religion lies mixed with some of the realizations that you can't you can just come across when you're on psychedelics mm -hmm. yeah. well, how, well, how did you decide to incorporate that into your content and share it with the world that was a that was another big probably a big yeah. decision well it it did come about a little bit because of two things one i had this realization of stone age man the principle of stone age man is that we are creatures that have evolved. My fundamentalist Christian friends don't like this argument, but it seems real obvious to me that studying animals, we talk about how they're specially adapted to their environment, whether it's the shrimp gobies I studied, you know, monkeys in the trees versus um, gorillas in the rainforest and 
chimpanzees or orangutans. They all have different adaptations to the environment that they're in. And if you look at our basic understanding of human history, we evolved as Stone Age people. We did not evolve in this world of phones and machines and societies that are 7 billion people large. You know, maybe we evolved in small communities of 300 people max. We evolved hiking around, hunting and gathering. And many of the problems that we have today, which are depression and anxiety and are mental health related, seem to be unlocked by just simply looking at our evolutionary history. What were the things that we're adapted to do? And what are the things today that we have to choose versus our Stone Age past? They didn't have to choose to be outside. They didn't have to choose to be in small groups. They didn't have to choose to you know, eat meats and and berries. Now we have to decide to do those things. And yet today, I feel like we don't have those elders in our community that are going to teach you the plants and animals like we had in the past. So I wanted there to be a resource for people to just get online, even though it's second best to an elder, to just explain some of these concepts. And maybe that allows people to have access to some education with a unique insight via the Stone Age man philosophy. Um, I'm not trying to glorify the Stone Age man thing. Because of the ethnobotany history that I had, I knew that a lot of Stone Age people did use ceremonial uses of entheogens and that that was a really important part of their communities. And it seemed to me that mushrooms could be an important part of humans moving forward if used right, if had in the, in the right container, so to speak. And yet we don't have that container these days. So it was really interesting to me. I knew that my kids would be using them in the future, probably for mental health reasons, given the science. And I just wanted to figure it out. I also, then the second reason for that is I knew that it would be popular as a video. And I, <laughs> I have to a little bit follow the analytics. When I stumbled across Amanita muscaria, 5 million views showed people were interested in it. But often people were mistaking that mushroom, the red and white psychoactive mushroom for the psychedelic psilocybin containing mushrooms. And so I thought that I could probably do a successful video on psilocybin containing ones. I got offered to go to Jamaica uh, with a mushroom expert I knew here in South Carolina and join a uh, a mushroom ceremony. And that seemed to be the perfect integration for magic mushrooms because I didn't want to talk about any of these things without trying them first. It didn't seem appropriate, but yet here they're illegal in the US. So how do you tell a story where you're using illegal drugs, but talking about the science? And so then I had an opportunity to do that. And I I made two videos on the mushrooms in Jamaica. One was a very scientific-based one. Uh, also showing uh, the therapeutic uses for them because it was a therapeutic retreat. And then I uh, did a little behind the scenes one, but the video that I did on the science behind it got shadow banned, most definitely. The views were just blowing up. I would have had millions of views, but at about 700,000, it flatlined, like completely flatlined. And I thought that was really interesting because even though there was a lot of people you know, the only people that watch it now are the ones that get sent it directly. It doesn't really pop up in the search or I tag it on a lot of the videos because I think it's still appropriate for, you know, not 
people who, or people who aren't older. So I wouldn't say kids, kids, but um, I'm not in any way saying people go out and do mushrooms. So that's how I mixed it into my videos. And then it just became apparent that people had a real interest in these mushrooms and other mushrooms and psychedelics in general. In fact, 90% of the comments that I get are people telling me how these things saved their life. And having gotten now tens of thousands of these comments that they come in every day, you know, 10, 10 to a hundred different comments a day. And they're all positive towards how they saved their life. Nobody's writing about how they wish they never did it. That to me is an opportunity that I have that most people don't to just survey people and get a, a view of how these mushrooms are helping people. And that was very enlightening actually. And I didn't know what to do with it for a long time. Other than I realized I probably have a role to try to get this information out there a little bit because I have a unique style of filmmaking. And then maybe I should also say that you have my video on Jamaica and the video I did on the magic mushrooms. The one perspective that I have that is probably different in I come looking like I'm a hippie. I, I don't think I don't think I look like a hippie. I, I also don't come into it like just a hardcore scientist. Um, and I don't come as like counterculture in any way, or I don't, hopefully I don't look irresponsible and talking about mushrooms. I even mention in there that I do have a Christian background and that I was a bit of a goody two shoes. And I did that intentionally because I wanted people who have a more conservative background to be able to see it and see that it's okay to see these things as a benefit to human health and your own mental health. And have that background as a more conservative-minded youth, I said, you know, right? So, right. and I had a lot of people, including yourself, that that wrote me and, and commented on that, and I thought that was interesting because I had never been brave enough in the past, really, to talk about that online because I was worried about the backlash that I would get from people who are kind of the Christian-hating, science-minded folks. But I didn't get that. And that was surprising. I thought I would get a lot of haters. Nobody hated on it. So. That's great. I've, I've sent that video to a number of people <clears throat> who are kind of new to the topic just because I felt like it gave them a responsible, science-based, non-countercultural type of uh, look into the current state of psychedelics. It appears to be to me to be um, definitely moving in a more responsible way uh, on average. I mean, there are definitely some negative aspects to the psychedelic community and some negative individuals involved, but it's, it's definitely turned a corner. You know, it's no longer about uh, party drugs and countercultural experiences. It, it appears to me much more, in line with spiritual and mental health. People are looking at it as an opportunity to improve their life in a, in a really healthy way, not just a, a quick escape from responsibility or something like that, that yeah, tends to I, get categorized yeah. with, with drug use. It's like this escape, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it definitely doesn't seem to be moving that direction in the, in the modern conversation. 
No. And I've been very excited that it seems to have uh, across the aisle support. I'm I'm going to a retreat coming up, this group called Sacred Hunting, which is to some degree focused on men uh, and also focused on vets who have PTSD. And it mixes in entheogen work. So there is a mushroom ceremony. And then it also mixes in a reintroduction to the sacred value of hunting. So I thought that that's an interesting thing. That's much more of a uh, something conservatives can get behind is things that help vets and helping with PTSD. It's based in Texas. So I thought that's that's going to be really interesting. I think also some figures like, you know, maybe, maybe the CrossFit type crowd through Joe Rogan, uh, kind of the improving your your physical self. I think Jordan Peterson talking about psychedelics has really helped. Um, I don't know if you've read the new book, Immortality Key by Brian Moresco. Mm -hmm. He's kind of a conservative type figure talking about the historic use of, of, of psychedelics. So I think all of that has been very helpful. And then, then just the fact that they are helpful. So as people start using them and appropriately and responsibly and sharing with their friends and they realize it's not, it's not what everybody thought it was. That's yeah, you did you did a couple videos on on ketamine and that doesn't mm, I don't right. know if I've even addressed that on the podcast. Right, Ketamine's right. a little bit different. It's not it's it's not a natural compound like psilocybin. Right. Do you mind spend a couple minutes on sure. on ketamine? I know your your wife was in one of those videos as well, yeah. and she seemed to have her own take on it. Maybe just so I send yeah. A bit on so that. ketamine is really interesting in that I never learned about ketamine in the ethnobotanical thing, because it wasn't a drug that was invented until what I think was like 1960, 61. It's a synthetic compound. It was always used, people talk about it as a horse tranquilizer. It was used, it's a very safe drug that they that every vet has in their bag, every doctor will have in their bag, because you can give people ketamine and it will knock them out for if you need to do quick surgeries, or they used ketamine when the kids in Thailand were trapped in the cave so that they, they would calm down and be able to put them through the tubes to get them out. Um, it's really hard to overdose on ketamine, so it's safe. But it has this weird trait in that oftentimes when people come back from their ketamine experience, they've had like life-changing realizations. Uh, doctors were realizing this, anesthesiologists. I talked to one and he's like, yeah, I don't know what it is, but everyone after they've come out of ketamine it's like it really helped them in their depression right so we didn't know what to do with that well my brother-in-law who had been fighting um some alcohol addiction had stumbled across a doctor in south carolina who was using ketamine for treatment and it really changed his life and it he said it, they mixed it at that time the doctor uh, with NAD and NAD is really good in the addiction space, but it's also really good as a performance performance thing. A lot of athletes will use NAD because it's the precursor to ATP. If you know your biology uh, gives a body in the mitochondria, a lot of energy. Anyways, point is my wife at some point, you know, I had just used mushrooms maybe six months to a year before and I was encouraging her to do the same because it would really would help her to, uh, depression that she was having. She had a great life and in no way 
would you ever look at her life and say, oh, she was depressed? But that's probably most people thinking, oh, well, she has a good life. She shouldn't be depressed. But that is, of course, what depression is. You can't think your way out of it often. And I didn't know what to do, yet I knew her brother was kind of doing these things. And I wouldn't have ever suggested ketamine even. But at some point, my wife really hit the bottom and was crying in her closet. She wouldn't come out of her room. My brother-in-law actually came over to her house and found her, but she's really good at faking it. And nobody else knew that she was so down. Um, and he found her and said, you know what? You need to come with us right now. We're going to Charleston. So basically scooped her up and, and right away, like within an hour, they were driving three hours down to Charleston and I helped facilitate to make sure that, you know, I, I covered the cost for a week treatment of ketamine. So you do, you do a infusion, which lasts about 40 minutes every day for five days. That's kind of how a good ketamine one works or, you know, six treatments over two weeks, something like that is how they often work. And she came back a different person, not in like you, she lost her normal self, but I saw the person that I fell in love with again. She had lost that person for some reason. She kept telling herself that she was not a good person and that she was, that she had lost that person that she thought she knew that she, and that she was just now this new sad person who nobody liked being around, which wasn't true. She was telling herself these lies that she couldn't unstick from it. And for some reason, the ketamine gave her an insight that was everyone does love you and that your heart is full for other people. And it gave her some breathing room to try to figure out what were the things in her life that she needed to sort out was more or less how I describe it. And she made some changes and through some some home treatment of ketamine over the next six months. So she would do, we do like week weekend treatments where she would do nasal spray ketamine mm -hmm. um, once a week for three or four hours. She'd just sit and meditate. Having that escape, basically, well, I don't want to say escape because my dad thinks it's just an escape and that drugs are not helpful, that you just need to change. But she couldn't change as much as she wanted to. And she knew all of the things. She was doing everything. She was doing yoga. She was working out. She was eating healthy. She was reading her Bible and praying every day. And yet she was stuck. And and the ketamine helped her breathe and then actually believe all the things that she was trying to get into her body. And so I went back six months later and did a video with the doctor, uh, Dr. Conover. He actually doesn't do ketamine anymore. He's more sports medicine, but he talks a lot about uh, ketamine. We did a week treatment where I probably wouldn't be diagnosed with depression, which is one thing you need for the treatment currently. They don't just give it to anyone, but he let me do a week treatment. And, you know, I realized of course that I am not perfect. You know, I, I actually had some issues and then I probably was like mild depression at times. And it was just the way I view the world. Like I was doubting whether or not I had any importance in the work that I was doing. And the ketamine helped me remind me that what I am doing is important and that I'm a valuable piece to the puzzle, which anybody could step back and be like, duh, of course you are. But I couldn't, I didn't believe it. 
And it helped me do that. But I think what I realized is that I just needed to be unstuck briefly and that the solution definitely is not using ketamine all the time. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't use ketamine at all anymore. Um, in fact, I, if I need anything, I, I might try to do some routine mushroom work because I think it's a little more powerful. But, you know, the goal with all of this is, of course, to not be using anything, but sometimes you get stuck. And that's where ketamine helped. The, the other thing that ketamine was really good at is that it had zero stigma. So unlike mushrooms, which we had been talking about before, there's a lot of stigma. My wife couldn't get over the fact that, you know, that was hippie thing. They were part of the don't do drugs that you learned about. That was one of the drugs you don't do. Ketamine, though, was at a doctor's office. That was a, a medicine for her, not a drug. And so she allowed the work to be done without going in with these preconceived notions of it being a drug and it not being appropriate for her. And I think for that reason, it's a great thing for people to be introduced to the ideas of alternative medicine in some ways, because I, I think it's an alternative medicine even though it was at a doctor's office and it was with an IV and it was a lot of staff around um, because it, it's not that the medicine was treating the symptom. It was that it allowed her brain to remember the person that she was, which is how a lot of psychedelics seem to work. Mm -hmm. And so I found it very helpful. And I know a lot of people now we've, we've passed through that it's been helpful for, but not everyone. Uh, I'd say 20% of people don't respond to it. That I, that I know, but that's also the statistic. But yeah, that's pretty powerful. 80% seem to be helped tremendously right. by it. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm a fan of ketamine, for sure. Yeah, I think often these forms of, of mild depression that we feel, or even beyond mild, I mean, it, it's difficult. You know, you go through the checklist. You're like, like you said, I've got the health. I've got the family. I've got the, the career. Um, my spiritual life is healthy. Why am I not... Why do I feel this existential burden? You know, um, I think our we just get in thought loops and we, for better or worse, we believe everything we think. And so if at any point we become self-critical, that that criticism is just on loop and um, and it'll just tear you down. I think one of the positive things psychedelics can do is interrupt that thought loop. And yeah. allow you to take inventory of your situation. And in the best of situations, you're able to gain a more uh, realistic perspective of where you are and where you want to be. And often for people who, you know, like us who quote unquote have it all, you know, it'll, it allows you to really um, get a sense of gratitude for the things, the valuable things in your life, you know, the relationships, uh, your material situation. And, you know, if you're not where you want to be, um, it can also give you an opportunity to see a, a fresh new vision for what's possible in your life. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's exactly what happens is especially with depression, why it seems so helpful is that it unsticks you briefly from the mind loop that you seem to be in. And that can be a problem, right, <laughs> which, right. and you know, I don't think you need that unsticking when you're young. And that's why I seem to agree with some of the people who say that, you know, psychedelics are best used when you're over 25 after your brain has been fully finished developing 
And then if you get stuck, then it's a great tool to unstick, you know, as a way to, as opposed to, you know, how a lot of people see it is just an escape. It's not really an escape. It can let you see that the world isn't the only, like the, the terrible world that you're seeing right now isn't the only way to see things. And that can help a little bit, maybe be an escape for a second, but then it helps you reframe your view of the current world. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Right. Yeah. Seems appropriate. <laughs> well, I mean, we're in a situation where people are really starting to investigate this topic. And mm-hmm. I don't want to put you on the spot and make you think that you have to give everyone advice, but mm-hmm. how would you counsel someone who's trying to make sense of all this and, and consider whether psychedelics are something that might be something they would want to include in their life or, or not. You know, I think some people uh, might be at risk of, of potentially causing themselves problems. Yeah. If, uh... Well, the advice that I seem to have is not that different from what everybody who has a lot of experience has. Um, although you may, you may see some differences as I explain. Um, one of the things that you everyone needs to be aware of going in is that psychedelics are going to loosen your brain up a little bit. bit. They always say that people who use psychedelics are more open. I would say generally you think that's a good thing. You want to be a little bit more open as a person because a lot of people are a little uh, too convinced that their own ideas are the best way and that can cause a lot of problems in society. But we're also probably aware of people who whose ideas are too open. <laughs> you know, they're already too open. And that would be people who have schizophrenia or maybe bipolar. They They could probably use a little more order in their life. I think that's why people often say if you have schizophrenia or bipolar, you definitely don't want psychedelics. You don't want it to like loosen their brain up even more. Um, although that might not be the way current people are viewing it. I do know that my brother-in-law, who one year ago, actually one year ago tomorrow, killed himself, um, had alcohol and ketamine involved that probably um, gave him the confidence to go through with what he had. He he had bipolar. He was um, very, very mentally ill because of the bipolar and had been fighting for a long time, a lot of issues. And I bring this story up because it really hits home. He had tried to kill himself a couple of times to the point where he was very close and had checked himself into a mental hospital, was there for a while, ended up getting treatment with ketamine and ketamine looked as if it had saved him. You know, I I grouped ketamine in with some psychedelics because it has some of the properties. And he was doing well by having some regular ketamine treatment, but then didn't have full access to it when he probably needed it and was sent home with also some nasal ketamine spray, which is kind of like having a full infusion, but you're responsible for yourself. You don't have a doctor watching you. And for somebody with bipolar, you need to be fully supervised. So Definitely, if you know anybody with bipolar or schizophrenia, psychedelics, which could be like taking mushrooms on the weekend, they should be fully supervised. They could be, from all the people I talk to, one of the best treatments, but also they should not be doing it alone. So don't don't ever think that they're that everyone should do them by themselves. But for everyone else, 
especially people that are really stuck in maybe negative thought patterns or um, are not viewing the world as this beautiful place that it could be. Maybe it isn't in the current situation they're living in, but it could be viewed that way. Psychedelics can be used to get into your mind a little bit and help you reframe things. And that maybe is a good picture of it. It's You're not going to lose yourself with psychedelics. In fact, what it's going to do is it's actually going to dig down into your conscious, subconscious, and it's going to tell you what you already think, but maybe are masking. And a lot of people, for, for some people, that's those are hard truths that are not comfortable to approach. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I know people who have, uh, after psychedelics, broken up with a longtime partner. And from the outside, that can sound scary. Like, oh, I would not ever want to do that because the, that relationship is is good. And what the psychedelics caused you to break up, I think maybe a better way of viewing it is, is they could have been in a bad relationship for a long time, but didn't have the confidence to do the right thing. Although, you know, that's a tricky topic because I do think relationships take work and sometimes you need to just commit to doing the work. Um, but that was just an example I knew recently. Um, but you have to be careful with it. And really, it just teaches you that there you need work to be done. And it gives you motivation to do the work where sometimes people just deny it, the things that are already in themselves. So those that that's one way I, I like to view it. And I think you need to do a lot of research ahead of time. Because unlike other drugs, in fact, unlike any other drugs I know, where say you have a headache, aspirin will help cure it. That's not how psychedelics work. You don't just take it and it covers up your symptoms. Like if you think you have depression and you're just going to take psychedelics as a drug one weekend and then it'll clear you, that's not how it works. I would say 80% of the magic of the psychedelic is instigated by having a good set and a good setting mixed with the appropriate dose. And that's more or less what everyone says, but you don't know it until you've seen it happen. You could stumble upon the right set and setting, and that could be very helpful. Like like me, I, I just ran up and I happened to be on a mountaintop with a friend who cared about me. And I had been listening to wise people on the car ride up and then thinking through problems I needed to solve, which was setting my intention, whether or not I knew it or not. And it it worked. But a lot of people, it doesn't work for them because they don't think it through. You know, I wish I could advise people to like, just go to a retreat like I went to in Jamaica because they think through all of that. Problem is that's like a five to $7,000 price tag. And most people can't afford that. But if you can't afford that, that's fantastic because they've, they're doing it legally. So you get over the fear of it being illegal. They mix with a therapist. They mix with a, in this case, the group I went, Blue Portal, has a mushroom scientist. So he, he grows really good mushrooms. Um, and all that's taken care of. And so you can then just focus on being there and you can trust and let go, which is a big part of the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, now that things are changing... Colorado and Oregon are going to start opening up to legal groups and it'll be more affordable. You'll probably be able to get microdoses in those places legally, which is also a good way forward. But I just hope people realize that psychedelics can be used in such a good way 
and can be used as a medicine that is unlike any of the medicines that we have today, which are just covering up symptoms that people have. And that it will really end up getting getting down to the root causes of a lot of people's problems. And people already know what a lot of those are. I really think deep down they know what they are. And that's what the mushrooms help pull out is, you know, your brain will tell you what it needs you to do if you just listen. I often give advice to people that I'm not sure is always the perfect thing. You know, a lot, often I'll say, and I think it's overall wise, but I tell people not to make any rapid life-changing decisions. Following, oh yeah. Following a psychedelic experience. Definitely. Definitely. <clears throat> However, sometimes if we don't make changes quickly, we revert back to our previous patterns. So for example, oftentimes people will recognize that they're not treating their body well. And so they'll decide, I'm going to start eating well, exercising, taking care of myself. Yes. And, and you probably need to act on that, you know, but mm -hmm. if you're doing something as significant as considering the future of a long-term relationship, maybe instead of acting quickly, maybe you decide to quickly seek counsel and input yeah uh, before I, just making a rapid choice you know yeah well i mean you definitely do have a window of time that you need to make changes in because it feels mm -hmm. urgent but you're definitely advised not to do anything huge uh, I, had, I had a friend that i helped with it and the next day he got in his car left charlotte and moved to miami <laughs> i was like whoa that seems a little a little rush maybe could you wait a week or so on that but he was set on oh, i was like oh gosh i think he had been thinking about it for a long time and he didn't have kids or a girlfriend or anything so it wasn't that big of a deal but yes <laughs> right it, it, it really is on an individual case-by-case -case basis it seems like and um we have to kind of couch advice in, in like a generalized context because everyone's experience is unique but um Right. Well, man, I appreciate you sharing those stories and insights with me. What What's the future look like? What do, What are you, uh, you got any projects you're currently working on or things on the horizon, uh, either including psychedelics or not? Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to dive into a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I want to get through the main psychedelics and do videos on them. I feel like now is the time if I'm going to do them because there is public interest and I think the stories are pertinent. So everything from the cacti, which I started on early in my career to LSD, I had an opportunity recently that, that I need to manifest again to go to Athens to this town of uh, uh, where, where the Ulyssinian mysteries are. I always have a problem mm -hmm. saying that word, uh, which was probably the Greeks using an LSD type drug in their ceremonies for thousands of years. So I'd like to introduce LSD there or in Switzerland where Albert Hoffman came up with it in the fifties, forties. And so once I get through some of those things, um, I also want to go through the plants of the Bible, which I got to figure, I, I want to find a way to do those. Well, everything from mustards to olives to all the different things and really talk about it because I find it really fascinating and not everyone gets it right and maybe the importance of some of those things but i look at it from a biology perspective so i have unique insight and then i think the other thing so those are just video wise 
the other thing I'm really fascinated on is how does integrating psychedelics fit into Christianity? Which I think is something you're also kind of trying to figure out because it seems to me like it could be a very helpful thing. Right now, psychedelics, if you go to a retreat, it's mixed with a very um, like hippie vibe. There's a like it, it almost like a Buddhist Hindu Far East type vibe to the whole thing, which is fine in some ways, but it's a little off putting to some people like me. It's a little off putting. It's like, oh, what am I? What is going on here? Um, I like I would like things to be a little more neutral, but it also would be nice to be able to afterwards uh, do it with people that have a similar religious background as myself, so I can mm-hmm. I can talk about the things within that structure. It doesn't have to go right to the mushroom voice. Like what are the mushrooms telling me? It's like, oh, well, what is maybe what is God revealing through this and how, how could that be mixed in? And I, and I think Christians need to be a little more open to it in general. Like it'd be really nice if some pretty good pastors who have the background in the teaching could, could kind of open up that discussion, right? Like I can't open it up necessarily. Right. I can I can show that I I have that background, but you know my background is biology, uh, and I think it will happen. And I think you know people. I don't know if you've ever listened to Jordan Peterson talk about psychedelics. It's been really helpful for him, and he's mm-hmm. drifted towards kind of a little more religious view generally in a lot of his uh, philosophy. Um, I think that would be very helpful um, because I think one of the one of the phrases that I heard. Jordan Peterson talking about is that Christians or people of faith need to seriously look at psychedelics because in this constant debate of is there a God or is there not, the best proof that we have right now is psychedelics. Like in that almost everyone, when they come back from a heavy dose psychedelic experience, especially a mystical experience, as they call it seems to say I had visions of God. Like that's, you know, almost, it's an almost impossible to prove the existence of God. You know, that's been one thing we've had a problem with for a long time, but isn't that strange that after psychedelics, everyone seems to point to something else besides just humans. And if we're not even taking that seriously, that seems like a shame. And, and I see a lot of Christians just, they don't take it seriously at all. And, there should probably be some more discussion about that to me. seems like. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm hoping to facilitate that with what I'm yeah. doing. Well, that's why I was very excited to chat with you. And I don't know the answers to those things. Those were quite beyond my capability, but it, I would be interested in exploring it in a more refined video at some point in the future. And I, and I think we're, we're going to see those things you're looking for over the next decade. You know, as they should, Christian leaders are probably you know very concerned about you know their own their own spiritual health and the advice and and patterns and examples they set for the people they're uh, shepherding. And so I'm sure they're very timid about introducing these things into their own life or recommending them to their congregations, but. Um, I do see a lot of interest among Christian leaders currently. So, mm-hmm. oh, really? Um, okay. 
Good. So this so this may take you know a decade or two to play out, um, which is which is wise. Uh, anytime yeah, well, yeah. you introduce I mean, something so radical to a paradigm that's fairly in place, you know, you want to do that slowly and you want to do it thoughtfully and, and with a right. lot of wisdom and discernment. So, well, I see this in some ways similar to the way I viewed evolution versus creation back in the day, right? It's, you know, kind of, as I was saying, I saw evolution at odds with the idea of creation and I don't actually see that being a problem today, right? The only way it's a problem is if you're viewing it with a certain lens. If not, um, the theory of evolution and, and the view that we find with science is just a way of explaining this process that, in theory, God put in motion, right? I mean, there's you just don't see it as cut and dry exactly like those few verses in Genesis say it, because uh, there's some interpretation that can be had there. In the same way, I don't think you know, Christianity versus use of some psychedelics need to be at odds. And I think in the past, people have seen them as like battling each other. It's either you're doing it through faith or you're like having some drugs and they don't, they don't want the two to mix. I don't, I don't necessarily see that that is always the case. And I, I like to think because I've had some experience with the psych psychedelics there, that theory that some of the early Christian uh, groups in in the Mediterranean area may have been using psychedelics as part of their process. Seems logical to me. I mean, I think that some r routine ceremony wrapped up in a religious type container would be a great way of using mushrooms instead of like going out and just doing them on your own. I I really wish that that our society did have a cultural use of these more than they do because i know my kids probably will end up using them in the future and every culture in the past had ceremonial containers for these things we don't yet but they could be mixed in if people were a little more up for doing them and the only right. people i see doing them now are the people who are reinventing the wheel with somewhat pagan views on the whole thing it's like we're going to talk to the mushrooms here so we're going to do these drum chants and now everyone's going to use mushrooms <laughs> it's like okay well that works i guess but it doesn't have to be that way well i heard someone <laughs> the other day mentioned that in the absence of organized religion you get disorganized religion so yeah i, I mean yeah. I, I, we're almost inherently religious whether we like it or not and so we're going to bring whatever kind of ceremonial atmosphere we're in we're going to bring our own particular uh, proclivities our own ethical nuances to whatever kind of relationships and communities we build and over time these things coalesce and become a religious tradition so I don't know how we either choose to incorporate psychedelics into the religious life or abstain from that. I'm sure groups will take divergent uh, positions on these things. And yeah, yeah, and, probably. And I mean, and I'm comfortable with that. I, I would like to hear everyone's perspective. So at least right yeah. now, my current position on psychedelics is cautious optimism. Uh, mm -hmm. It makes sense. That makes uh, sense. Because I can't, I can't, I can't see the future. I don't know where this leads us. Uh, maybe, you know, 50 years from now, I mean, I don't think so, but maybe it's, uh, 
it's all just a horrible idea and we're all going to become confused, <laughs> uh, lazy navel gazers. Who knows? Um, well, and I, you know, I do see different groups um, using psychedelics with something else. Like I have a friend who does yoga and psychedelics and his realization is that the psychedelics aren't the key. The yoga is the key. Cause so they start out heavy with the psychedelics, but then it always drifts towards really the key is just meditation and yoga. And uh, I could see a similar thing with Christianity is you really don't want to be using psychedelics all the time, but the psychedelics is just to unstick you a little bit to get you into a, <laughs> you just need to be within a group that can support the unsticking. It makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure my, my listeners will want to investigate some more of your mm. content. Uh, what's what are the best routes? So what are the the things you would like to lead, steer people towards the most? Personally, I'm a fan of your YouTube channel, but just recently yeah. I've discovered you've got way more than that going on. You've got classes, um, books, uh, educational materials. Sure, uh, sure. So I'm on social media as Untamed Science on pretty much all platforms. That's because that was the original name for the company. It didn't take off until I changed the YouTube channel to Stone Age Man. So if you're on YouTube, it's Stone Age Man. And I have a website, Stone Age Man. We, we do courses. Uh, right now we do a one every winter, which is a survival course, but really just a way of getting together and learning to reconnect with the wild. But in the winter... We're going to start doing one, which we had to get canceled because of COVID, which is a Amazon trip. So a, a rainforest type one, and that'll be mixing in more um, indigenous type stuff. Um, there may be some entheogen things, but really just uh, mixing with some of the community down there and learning how they lived in the rainforest. I think it's one fascinating and I think is really helpful for the soul to spend a week living outside but those are just you know not very many people can go on those i think it's only six to ten per trip mm-hmm. but but that's just to say that i do in-person things as well as the youtube channel which is really my main way of making an income right now um, so you can go to youtube and find out all the things or the website stone age man which just is a compilation of everything i do on youtube but with some texts written and i have a i have a book that i wrote just recently too called mother nature is not trying to kill you which is a wildlife and bushcraft survival guide. But that was really, that's just a little bit of a side thing. It's a little bit pop pop science on a lot of the stuff I've been teaching. It's fun for kids. I definitely recommend getting the book for any kid from maybe 10 years old to 25 or older. It's really fun. It just, you know, it's not a science textbook. It's written for the non-scientist now, I've noticed there's an audio book available. Do you think that book? Oh, the audio book, yeah. I, I, I did the audio book, so it's me speaking. Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that book is, um, is there uh, illustrations that are necessary or do you feel like the audio is uh, adequate like in that regard? Um, well, I wrote it as a field guide, <laughs> but with some story to it. So it's a fun listen on the audio book, but... I really think it's best sitting next to the toilet <laughs> or something out of that or next to the bed stand because each right. chapter is only like four pages and and some of them have some lists and I did about half of the drawings so they're it's fun with the drawings and, and the chapters they kind of uh stand alone you can uh yeah each chapter is a standalone so it's you know I have just only a little bit of intro to the book but then it's like sharks 
what what do you need to know about sharks to stay safe? What do you need to know about piranha? What about venomous snakes, bears? Pretty much every example that is a, an exception to the rule of animals or, or wildlife is not trying to kill you is in there. And then I go through some of the myths of things that you think are trying to kill you but aren't, like piranha, for instance. Uh, you know, you'll see that meme occasionally that that states, when I was a kid, I thought as an adult, quicksand was going to be a lot uh, larger of an issue in my life than it actually oh. has turned out to be. <laughs> I, I, right. I have that I have that feeling towards piranha. You know, when I was a kid, I thought piranhas are going to kill us all. You know? Yeah, so, that is hilarious. Yeah, I talk about in there my, my experience growing piranha as a kid and how that changed my view on piranha because I had a whole bunch of piranha as pets. <laughs> I do oh. not have a chapter on psychedelics in here. Uh, which is where I've started to move towards in the last few years after having written the book. But that's just because other people find it really interesting. And it's hard to compete making videos about tigers, uh, but you can <laughs> right now make unique videos about mushrooms and people seem to want to watch it. So. Well, uh, speaking of piranha, we've come a little bit full circle. There's one last question I have for you. Okay. Um, speaking of piranha. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you you started out studying fish, marine life, uh, biology. Um, have you heard of this psychedelic fish? Do you know anything about that? Um, well, so there is a fish that is a puffer fish that has tetrodotoxin in it. I think that might be the one that you're talking about. Maybe. It's the myth where it's not necessarily, it's psychoactive for sure. Uh, it's where our myths and rumors of zombies come from. So if you cut the i think it's the liver of a of a puffer fish not all puffer fish but some puffer fish it leaks out into the tissues tetrodotoxin and if you eat it and it's it's prepared in japan called fugu um it's you have to be licensed to prepare fugu because it's toxic uh at higher doses but it makes your whole body go numb and your tongue kind of tingle and if you feed it to somebody like they, Wade Davis, who is famous in as an ethnobotanist, discovered this in uh, Haiti. If you feed people tetrodotoxin, they basically are in a zombified state and you can make them be your slaves for years on end, just walking zombies, basically. And a couple people were enslaved like this in Haiti and then escaped, you know, people they thought were dead. So you, you can like essentially kill somebody, bury them with, and then with the tetrodotoxin, their, their heart rate goes down. So you can't tell they're alive Then you can dig them up and then they're your slave. That was, the, I think that might be what you're referring to, but there may be some other fish. Wow. I wasn't aware of that extent of it. So, oh, well, what is the psychoactive fish you're talking about? Uh, no, that, 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 that may be it. I, I think that's know. the one. I think that's the one people would be referring to. I just recently heard a rumor, and so with your background in marine life, I thought you might might have a take on that. So mm -hmm. maybe that is a video on that. I'll say that deserves a video. I believe. <laughs> I do have a video on that. I can send you. It's a Halloween episode that we did on zombies. A little less related to the tetrodotoxin, but it's listed in there. Um, it's the, the zombies that they create. It's partly with tetrodotoxin, and then partly with uh, datura, which is another plant. So I'll send you that video. All on Stone Age Man, if anybody wants to go look it up. <laughs> I will link to it for sure. Absolutely. 
It's been awesome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on faith, your thoughts and experiences on psychedelics, and look forward to uh, future content that you release. I'll be uh, I'll be watching and and uh, sharing it with my friends and family. Thank you for having me on, Clint. And uh, it was a pleasure to be able to speak to some of these topics that I don't get to talk about all that often. Well, uh, let's do it again. Okay. Take care. Bye. Once again, my deepest thanks to Rob Nelson for joining us today on the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. I've really enjoyed getting to know Rob in the process of scheduling this interview. Like so many of my guests, Rob is not exactly the kind of person you've been taught to expect would take an active interest in the topic of psychedelics. Like so many of you, he is a hardworking, compassionate, creative, Christian family person, not a socially and politically charged countercultural weirdo. Today, all over the world, normal, everyday, kind, loving, hardworking Christian people are investigating the topic of psychedelics. And although most of these substances and practices remain illegal in most nations today, that tide appears to be quickly turning. And many of you have mentioned to me that you are interested in exploring your own psychedelic journey. I find it very difficult to offer practical advice to those of you who reach out for counsel in this regard. First of all, I'm extremely hesitant to suggest that someone engage with psychedelic medicines. These medicines are not appropriate for everyone. It would be very difficult for me to suggest that psychedelic medicines would be a good idea for someone without having a comprehensive understanding of their mental, spiritual, and emotional condition, as well as some information about their family, career, and religious relationships. I would feel somewhat responsible if I recommended someone explore psychedelics and they were somehow harmed in the process. But I also recognize that many of you are intent on having a psychedelic experience regardless, and you are looking for safe, healthy, and legal opportunities to do so. With that in mind, I am currently investigating a variety of legal psychedelic service providers and hope at some point in the future to offer a list of trusted contacts for my listeners. I am likewise considering the potential of participating in the organization and facilitation of safe, legal group retreat opportunities for listeners that are offered in a thoroughly Christian context and with faithful Christian clergy offering Christian counsel and integration support. I admit, those are pretty high expectations, and I'm not sure how soon something of this nature will be available. But if that is something you or someone you know might be interested in, send me an email, contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com with listener retreat in the subject line, and I'll keep you up to date on opportunities if and when they are available. Finally, check out the show notes for this episode to find the links to Rob Nelson and all of his amazing content. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, support, and share it with a friend. Also, please rate and review the podcast on your favorite listening platforms. And be sure to leave your comments and reach out to me via email or on Twitter. And until we meet again here at the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you.